come here to maim you. You might as well go ahead and admit it. You might as well own up to the philosophy for some of you, and that is that life sucks, and then you die. Doubt you've ever been in a real street fight. That looks at that pretty face. I don't think you've ever taken a punch before in your life. Now, now it's eye, it's eye for an eye. Now it's you, you take one of mine, and I take two of yours. Who there? at home. Acknowledge me. It's Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood. WWE, AEW, MLW, NWA, New Japan, the Indies, and more. It's the Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday show with Jonathan Hood. What's up, everybody, and welcome into Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Hood. Hope that you are enjoying your day. Don't forget to follow me on the YouTube page, youtube.com. Look for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Wrestling TWT. Again, Wrestling TWT. This edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday will have a lot of news and notes, including a big announcement for yours truly. But first, let me tell you something that's really big for me as a wrestling fan. I am now a voter for Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter. The Hall of Fame vote for wrestling is really big with Dave Meltzer. And I, for the first time in 2021, will be able to vote um, for the Hall of Fame. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited to be able to be chosen to do this. This is great. And so if you're an old school wrestling fan, this podcast is for you. And if you're not an old school wrestling fan, you'll say, okay, Hood, who are some of these names? Well, I think this is going to be a learning process for some of you and for others. You're going to say, hey, this is going to be very interesting when it comes to the Hall of Fame of professional wrestling. Not the WWE Hall of Fame, but the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So let me give you the candidates. And we're going to talk to my buddy Chris Zellner down in Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to get his thoughts because he also is a Dave Meltzer Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame uh, voter as well. And we'll compare ballots. So here are the names on the ballot. Don Owen, who is a Portland Territory uh, promoter. Sergeant Slaughter, Jim Crockett Jr., Enrique Torres, Johnny Walker, our number wrestling number two. Um, if you go to the archives of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, you'll hear uh, about the passing of Mr. Wrestling 2. And we really go through his uh, wrestling lineage and everything that he's has gone through. So Johnny Walker's on this list. Ole Anderson, Bob Armstrong, the Hollywood Blondes, the original Hollywood Blondes, Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown with Sir Oliver Humperdinck as their manager. Jerry Briscoe, June Byers, Buddy Colt, Wild Bull Curry, Cowboy Bob Ellis, the fabulous ones of Stan Lane and Steve Kern, Pampiro Furpo. Remember when Randy Savage used to go, oh, yeah, dig it. He got that from Pampiro Furpo. Go to YouTube. You'll be able to see it for yourself. Black Gordman and Great Goliath. Uh, the Mongolian Stomper, Rocky Johnson, Sputnik Monroe, who, as a white person, uh, was able to help break the color barrier in Memphis wrestling in the 60s. Sputnik Monroe, uh, Blackjack Mulligan, Johnny Rougeau, uh, the Von Brauners with Saul Weingroff as their manager. Um, some other names like Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson with J.J. Dillon, Nikki Bella, Junkyard Dog, 
Bill Dundee, Ed, Charlotte Flair, Bill Goldberg, Matt and Jeff Hardy, Kamala, Rick Martell, John Moxley, uh, Paul Orndorff, Randy Orton, CM Punk, Seth Rollins, Trish Stratus, Rick and Scott Steiner, The Ultimate Warrior. And there's also categories in Japan and Mexico as well as Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands and Africa. And these, and there's also a non-wrestlers category like Ted Turner, the Grand Wizard from the WWF days, Tony Schiavone's on here, uh, Stephanie McMahon. Jim Johnston, who was the guy that put the music together for the WWE back in the day. Bob Caudill, the longtime Mid-Atlantic and NWA announcer. Dave Brown, longtime Memphis announcer. Lord James Blears, AWA announcer. Uh, and so many more. So I think that this is interesting. When you look at this list, and I get an opportunity to pick only 10 out of this, all this, this long list for the 2021 Hall of Fame elections, this is really awesome. Let me call Chris Zellner, and we will compare uh, our Hall of Fame ballots and try to figure out, okay, who should be in and who's been left out too long. Let me call Chris, and we'll get underway. And we have more after our conversation, by the way, so stay tuned. Don't just snap off. Make sure that you continue to listen all the way through or find the section about some breaking news about Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, my thoughts on some other things as well. But Chris Zellner is going to join me right now on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. From the Between the Sheets podcast, it is our buddy Chris Zellner uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, joining me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN Chicago. Chris, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Always uh, great to be on your show, Jonathan. Always great Thank for you. you to be with us. And after our conversation, you and I need to talk about our Bulldogs. Uh, we have that in common, the Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> we, you and I need to have some speaks, as uh, Mongo told uh, umpire Angel Hernandez at Wrigley Field. Some speaks, you and I need to talk about this. This is nonsense here. Uh, well, you know, the Bulldogs did not have a good day. I think, um, I think that they were maybe believing too much of their hype mm-hmm. and i think that uh like saban said after the game he said you know you, y'all gave us good rat poison this week it was yummy <laughs> you know alabama being underdogs i mean that, that, that's so rare i mean that saban was living for that and he coached those guys up and i think we'll play again and i think the result might be a little bit different this next time i love so, being here in the midwest you got those uh, chesty michigan fans and i said you know what yeah, we might be down on Saturday, but we're not going to lose to a Big Ten team, just so you know. <laughs> hey, Michigan, I mean, Michigan and Georgia is a, a tremendous matchup. Sure. They, they, they're, they're kind of mirror images of each other in a lot of ways. So that that's going to be a uh, fantastic football game, I think, on uh, New Year's Eve in Miami. But I think Georgia has something to prove now. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, quite the wake-up call um, for, I think, a lot of Georgia fans and the team on Saturday. We'll see what happens against Uh, Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. So I'm excited, Chris. I want to share this with you because this is my first time voting for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame uh, from Dave Meltzer. I got the ballot and I was like, wow. I mean, I've been seeing this for years. You know, you and I have been Meltzer guys for a long time reading that newsletter. But now for me to be a first time guy on the be able to vote, it's great. What, What was your first time like when you received that ballot from Dave? I mean, it was something, you know, the Hall of Fame's been in existence since 96, and uh, I got my first ballot hmm, about five, six years ago. Uh So, yeah, I've been, you know, following along with the Hall of Fame thing for 
almost 20 years up to that point and doing message board breakdowns of who should be in the Hall of Fame, who shouldn't, and, this, and who should be getting voted in, and all this other stuff. And I was involved in deep discussions about that in early podcast days before I had my own show. We were, we were doing that stuff. And, uh, yeah, to get it, it, it kind of, you know, it was, it was kind of a special feeling in a way because, you know, we're all sports fans and we know how the Hall of Fames go and you know, media, prominent me, media members get votes. And to, you know, have that distinction put on you that, you know, you're prominent enough in Dave's eyes to be able to vote in that Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, it, it may sound you know a little sappy, but it does it does feel kind of important to 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 us as a wrestling fan. And uh, yeah, you get on there and you look at all these guys and, and like, wow, there's so much great talent on here, yeah. and you're limited to how you can vote. You know, in the ten, you, you can only vote up to ten people on the regular ballot, and like, how can I? How am I going to do this? I think twenty of these. Yeah, people should be in the Hall of Fame. Right. So it's very hard to do that, you know, that final elimination process. That, but, you know, as, as time goes on, I think you'll learn that once you do your first ballot, if you lose people, I mean, you're pretty much going to keep the same people on your ballot. So you'll go from having 10 spots to fill to maybe having two, three spots to fill. So it kind of makes it a little bit easier in that regard. All right, so um, I want you to share your ballot. I have it in front of me, but I want you to share your ballot because I, in the open, I went through a number of names that you could vote on. As you mentioned, you could only vote for 10. I, I was just excited to be able to receive that email and to start you know, really pouring through the names. So let's start from the beginning. The uh, Historical performer, Performers Era candidates, who did you vote for there? Me being kind of a historian, I think that's how Dave, Dave has the, the voters listed in sections, and mm-hmm. I think I am listed as a historian. So this is the, the the main category basically for me. So I voted for four. I voted for Bullet Bob Armstrong, who, I mean, Bob Armstrong is a legend in the state of Georgia and in the South, period. Was right. he Was he the main guy in in Georgia, he wasn't the main guy, but he was the main guy in Southeastern and Continental in, in the 70s and 80s. He had good runs in Florida and Memphis where he was a main eventer, but he wasn't like the guy. But he was a steady steady guy for you know, well over 25 years and had a, a tremendous career. Also uh, was involved in the business side of it as being one of the, the owners of uh, Continental with uh, the Fullers and stuff like that and booked. So he, he had uh, a lot of um, other things on his plate as well besides in-ring. But yeah, Bob is just a guy who, like I said, I, I just I think that he is a Hall of Fame guy. And, and is it maybe a little biased there because of the, you know where I live? Probably so. But that's the way these things go. There's people that live in the Northeast that are biased towards Northeast or Canada and, and Europe or whatever. So there's that type of location bias there. Yeah, so I mean, Bob deserves um, definitely Hall of Fame consideration and should be in because of all the things you laid out. I mean, he, he drew money as a, as a white meat baby face. Um, you know, I thought his role also in Smoky Mountain as a commissioner was very good. I think it's underrated. Absolutely. I'm glad that you and Bix talk about that from time to time because I just think that, you know, in an era where you're trying to figure out, okay, where's wrestling in this era, 
it, Jim Cornette took it all the way back to old school, and I think that Bob fit the uh, the mold well in that regard. But all those great matches in Continental, battling with the Fullers, and being a, a baby, it could be a good baby face and a very good heel as well. I just think his versatility deserves Hall of Fame consideration. Yeah, I mean, he was part of the, also another thing too that doesn't get talked about with Bob enough is he was you know one of the catalysts of the last great run of Memphis in the Memphis Smoky Mountain feud as mm-hmm. the evil Smoky Mountain commissioner there. You know, it started out Rock and Roll Express and uh, PG-13, but it shifted to the he got the Bob. And, uh, yeah, he, he was very important in that whole feud. So, um, yeah, Bob, and, and, you know, look at his kids. I, I think, you know, there's other things you add to it, too. The guy, you know, put out, you know, some great wrestlers, in the, you know, from the family, too. It was part of their, oh, yeah. it was their trainer. So, and we, we consider people as trainers as well and they're as part of their uh, profile. So, there's a lot that Bob's got going for him here. All right. Who else is on your uh, list here? The fabulous one, Stan Lane and Steve Kern, I think is a slam dunk. And it's, you know, I think they should have been voted in a long time ago. Now, Stan Lane's already in as a member of the Midnight Express, but. The Fabulous Ones is maybe the most important tag team of the last 40 years because they they revolutionized babyface tag team wrestling as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, were there babyface tag teams for years and years and years? Of course there was, but there was nobody like the Fabulous Ones. Stan Lane and Steve Kern, who had been in Memphis for a, you know, quite a while before they were put together had teamed together on occasions as well uh, before they were put together officially and they they take them off television for a couple of weeks they grow beards little stubble beards they had these they had the, the early video of the strobe lights and everything <laughs> playing everybody wants you up to the squire right they show up to the studio for their first match as a team and the, the girls just go completely nuts for this. And, and these are guys who have been there for a year and a year and a half. So it's not nothing new. It's just a fresh coat of paint on an act. They get the, you know, the endorsement from Jackie Fargo. They get the top hats and the bow ties. And they go out there and they become just this kick-ass babyface tag team and have changed the game. I mean, without the Fabulous Ones, there is no Rock and Roll Express. And then they're created because Jerry Lawler was going to split from the Memphis office. He was going to go on his own and create the Rock and Roll Express to be his version of the Fabulous Ones. But cooler heads prevailed between Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett. They stayed together. So you had both tag teams in the territory at the same time. But the Fabulous Ones had an amazing fuse on the Moondogs, Sheep Herders, um, the Bruise Brothers, Dream Machine, Porkchop, Cash, mm-hmm. um, the Road Warriors. I mean, they they feud with all the tag teams in Memphis. Went to the AWA. Vern Gagne didn't know how to use them correctly. Shocking, yeah. shocking that of that course. happened. But but, but still, they had a decent <laughs> run there. Yeah. They go back to Memphis, kill it again, have a great feud there with uh, the PYTs, Coco Ware and Overall Austin, and uh, the other version of Sheep Herders, Jonathan Boyd and Rip Morgan, and. They, they go to work from Mid-South. That didn't last very long. That's where we got our Fabulous Ones Rock and Roll Express match, though, was in Mid-South that, that exists on tape. And, I mean, they had a great run together, but they kind of get overshadowed because of, A, the Rock and Roll Express, and, B, Stan Lane being with Bobby and the Midnight Express. So 
I think the fabulous ones, you know, their main um, credential is the influence. And they drew. I mean, they were main eventers. The you know, territory that Jerry Lawler was always the guy. The fabulous ones, you know, basically surpassed him for a while there. So, uh, yeah, I think they definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. I would agree with you. No Rock and Roll Express, no PYTs, there's no Fantastics, there's no Caman Connection, uh, Brunzel and Ganya. I mean, it, it goes on and on as far as flashy, you know, like looking at the fabulous ones, someone had to be the guinea pig for this, right? If I put on this tie and I put on these vests and this top hat and have these kind of 80s videos, which was in back then, how will it get over? Well, it got over fine because throughout the territories, people looked at that and said, we can replicate that. And you saw something similar to the fabulous ones almost in every territory back then, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the thing about the fabulous ones too was they were supposed to turn heel. They wanted them they wanted him to come off as looking gay, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. to the fans in Tennessee because they would do these videos where they're sitting around the barn with no uh, <laughs> shirts on, with hayseeds in their mouths and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And they're always together. And they were supposed to be gay, you know, to those fans. But they couldn't turn them because the fans didn't want to boo them. And they and again unlike rock and rolls and some other Bayface tag teams, like I said, they kicked ass. They were dudes out there just going, and I think that's one thing that endeared them a lot to the fans, especially male fans, is they were tough. They were not there just selling and being mamby pamby. They went out there and they took it to the to the roughest of the rough. Uh, tell us about Sputnik Monroe, your choice of Sputnik, and from Memphis. Sputnik Monroe is a guy who was around in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. Probably somebody that not a lot of fans that are, you know, have been born in the last 40 years know of. Although there was a big Sputnik Monroe thing that went on a couple of years ago where there was a, a song written about him and there was, um, you know, this whole big uh, thing that was on uh, like a documentary type deal and stuff like that. And yeah, Memphis, he, Memphis Heat, right, Chris? Memphis Heat, yeah, yeah that. And there's some other things too. But um, Spudden Monroe changed wrestling in the South forever in a lot of ways because he was the guy that was the linchpin in getting Memphis wrestling integrated because he was the first guy to team with a black wrestler, white guy, Norvell Austin, mm-hmm. you know, and. Norval Austin would um, had a blonde streak in his hair, while Sputnik had a dark streak in his blonde hair, and they changed the game. Because at one point, I mean, Sputnik was like, "I'm not going to wrestle anymore if the fans are segregated." And in Memphis, the fans were segregated. the The black fans sat up in the balcony, while the white fans got to sit down in the lower section. He said, "That's not fair. That's not right." We need to have all the fans be able to sit wherever they want to sit. And he wouldn't perform unless it happened. And it happened. You know, and it, like I said, it changed Southern wrestling forever, especially in Memphis. So you got that going for him. Plus, he worked everywhere, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And he was a draw everywhere he went. One of the most charismatic wrestlers of his era, one of the greatest promos. Bayface or heel. I mean, he's a legend in wrestling that just, he doesn't get talked about enough. So um, I think for influence alone and, you know, more stuff out of the ring than in the ring, because I've, you know, 
I've never really seen Sputnik and Monroe Russell because yeah. it was before videotape and stuff like that. You may see little film clips here and there, but it's everything that he did outside the ring that gets him in as a Hall of Famer to me. We hear all these stories about Sputnik and Monroe hanging with uh, with black bands or in the black bars, being arrested, and then Sputnik's lawyer was African American. Uh, so, so that also is almost like a double shot at the police at the time because Sputnik, he wanted to make sure that the African-American fan was in Memphis to see um, see him wrestle. And he would hang out there in areas where it's like, Boy, Sputnik, why are you hanging out there? Because he said, those are my people. And so and so I thought that, that those stories about Sputnik were interesting. And I would say that he has legendary status because of that. It's not even, Chris, it's not even about championships or all that lineage and all that. It's just that for what he did for Memphis, that was big, huge. Absolutely. It changed the game. And, and Memphis became one of those cities where, you know, the, the black fan base there became one of the best fan bases in the, in, in the wrestling world. Easy. And he was part of that. But uh, Mr. Wrestling 2. Mr. Wrestling 2 is somebody that I had uh, wrote a big thing for years ago um, when I was just getting started voting the Hall of Fame and why I thought he should be in there. I mean, he is a guy who changed the game in Georgia wrestling. I mean, Mr. Wrestling 1, Tim Woods, was a superstar in the state of Georgia. But it got to the point where they needed somebody else too because everybody couldn't have Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods on their show. So they decided to create a Mr. Wrestling 2, kind of like the Rock and Roll Special Fabulous Ones type deal. And they took Johnny Walker, Johnny Rubberman Walker, who was a guy who had been working for years. He was in Florida at that time, working actually under Mass Dares, the grappler. And uh, they brought him up to Georgia, put, put a mask on him, changed it from regular wrestling one's look because he was all white so wrestler two had white with black trim mm -hmm. and that differentiated him from him. so they were a tag team and he got over in that regard then he turned on him turned heel and johnny walker is a guy who is a natural heel in in, in real life at times he's a curmudgeon and uh, turn heel, that got over humongous, great feud. Then they turned it back, babyface, once wrestling won. Started going other places and wasn't around much, and he just became the Georgia wrestling legend. I mean, he was a major star and would have been world champion if he didn't wear the mask. He was Jimmy Carter's mother's favorite wrestler. He couldn't get into She wanted him to be at the White House for the inauguration. He wouldn't go because he wouldn't take his mask off. Right, <laughs> that's right. And the Secret Service wouldn't let him in yeah. unless he unmasked. And he says, "I won't unmask," so he didn't go. So they had, they did something later on where she, she her, and him got to hook up, and he took photos with Jimmy Carter, had Jimmy Carter in a headlock, or Jimmy Carter had him in a headlock. I think I can't mm -hmm. remember how it went, but um, he just became the legend of Atlanta for in the seventies, and it was at the birth of TBS. Well, not TBS directly, but the birth of them going on cable on the satellite. And then, uh, you know, he, he stayed there and Tommy Rich came along and then he moved on, started moving on, going to work for Bill Watts off and on, but always would come back and we'd come back. He'd be, you know, right back in his old spot. And yeah, he's just a guy who, if you talk to fans around here about wrestling, uh, fans that are over the age of say 45 and he's going to come up. 
he will come up immediately because he was the guy. And, and like I said, so he had a great career of babyface and heel, legendary run in Mid-South too, especially his heel run turning on Magnum TA mm-hmm. and the feud that pretty much put Magnum TA on the map as a, a top guy. So um, he had a lot there. Now, the thing about wrestling too in the last couple of years mm-hmm. is that there have been revelations that came out that wrestling too had some legal issues when he was a teenager in Hawaii and you know, you know God, that was in like the thirties or forties. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was part of a, a gang rape mm-hmm. and he did time for that. Now I totally get where people would not vote for wrestling too because of stuff like that. I get it. I understand it completely. You know, if that's how you feel, that's fine. I'm kind of one of these who, when it comes to outside the ring stuff, especially something like that, that was so far in his past, I, I kind of like to think people change. You know, I kind of like to think that people grow up and change. And he, you know, got married to Olivia Walker, who was the roadmaker for Ric Flair, Gray Valentine, and many others. Mm-hmm. They were married for till he died. So, they, I mean, I, I like to think that he grew up and changed and became a different person. Yeah. So, I like to think that maybe maybe I'm being naive. I don't know. I never heard anything about him, you know, after that. So, I, but again, I understand. I get where somebody could decide I'm not going to vote for him because of his past transgressions. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's up, to, that's up to the individuals. I mean, for... I can. I think guys like you and I, we can separate um, the the performer from the action that we learned late in life. Obviously, during his, you know, after he was retired, we had no idea that that was going on. I just realized that maybe a year ago. And by the yeah. way, for our Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday audience, you can go in the archives of our podcast where I talk about uh, Johnny Walker and Barb Armstrong long form after they passed away. It's in the archives of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. So I, I totally get it. I can separate the two in that regard. Um, so, Chris, uh, before we go to the next category, I'll just tell you what I went with. Um, okay. For that first historical performers, I went Sputnik Monroe, Ole Anderson, and Rocky Johnson. Now, we already talked about Sputnik Monroe, what he meant to the Memphis area. I went Ole Anderson because you think about Ole Anderson not just as the as the wrestler, uh, part of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, uh, part of the Four Horsemen, but even before that, just a tremendous wrestler um, and Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, someone that um, was a booker also in the business. Uh, try to start what was it? Try to start Chattanooga and then, and then shut it down after eight weeks. I think that was something like that, right? He had a, an NWA territory. He's like, okay, this ain't gonna work. Yeah, that was in '83. <laughs> that's when the, that's when Ole. Uh, that was an interesting year for Ole, and that was the beginning of the end of uh, George Chancho Presley too. Was yeah. in that era. But I, I just look at Ole Anderson as someone again behind the scenes, and also one of the great promos as well. I mean, that turn on. on on Dusty and, and what he's done with the Four Horsemen, all that. I just think that's a Hall of Fame career for Ole Anderson. Here's the thing with Ole with me. Um, I think Ole has a better case with Gene than he does with Solo. Mm. Uh, I really think that. Um, Ole and Gene, as the tag team, was like the tag team of the 70s, especially in the South. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, they mainly hung around Georgia and the Carolinas, but they didn't need to go anywhere else. 
they made big money. They drew for years together as a tag team. They're like wrestling too. When you mentioned wrestling and from the seventies, they're going to come up down here. I mean, this is the way it is. Both guys train guys in the business. Maybe they were a little rough on them, but they still they put guys in the business. Um, they had their hands in, in booking. Both Oli and Gene yep. had their hands in booking. Um, Gene was involved in the business. Well, he retired as being one of the uh, office guys for Crockett, you know, doing different things. So I think together they have a they have a case. Only the singles guy, yes. I mean, he has some success outside of working with Gene. Then, of course, you had the business stuff to go in there, too, because, I mean, he was very successful in Georgia for a few years there before everything started falling apart. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, his 1990 and 93 runs with uh, – WCW, which, you know, that's a whole other story. Oh, man. But, but, um, Sting. But, oh, yeah, Sting. <laughs> but Oli and Gene, uh, yeah, I think together they had the case. But I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny Oli as a solo either. So, yeah, I mean, I know other people that are voting for him as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how much he gets. Yeah, I just think, I just think about Oli and, and that Georgia run. And then, you know, I, I, in, and you and Vixen Span have talked about this as well. Just how how that TV, that Turner TV, opened up a new horizon for Ohio and Michigan. I mean, you're Georgia champion of wrestling, but you're drawing in the Midwest, which I find fascinating, right? And Ole was a spearhead for that because he was there with Gordon Soley as a broadcaster. Okay, we don't, we, we talk about his Hall of Fame career. Adam Adam is a broadcaster with the tie in the jacket. I mean. Uh, he did bring a presence, but he wasn't great at it. But at least when he saw him, you know, he meant business, right? And so I like that part of it. And just I just think that he deserves consideration. I, I added Rocky Johnson to the list as well. So, Chris, I just look at it like this. So so Rocky Johnson all over the country, uh, part of the first African-American tag team champions with uh, Tony Atlas in the early 80s. And everywhere Rocky went, he drew. And as we well know, there was a time in the 70s and even in the 80s when if you had one black wrestler, you were good, right? I mean, it just because that's how it went. There were an attraction like women and the midgets, as they said back in the day. And Rocky was that guy. Rocky, we, I could put him on the list of maybe 10 or 12 that could have been world champion, but never was world champion. And again, he was all over. He was a vagabond all over the country in the territory days. But I think... Rocky, for everything that he brought to most territories, I think he deserves consideration. Rocky Johnson's a guy who, I mean, he's been overshadowed by his son in a lot of ways, yeah. and that's understandable. But Rocky was very successful in the 70s. Uh, everywhere he went, he was a draw. Um, he drew in Georgia. He was a draw in Florida, uh, Memphis, um, Los Angeles. I mean, everywhere he went, you name it. I mean, he was a, a top guy. Um, and then in WWF in, in, the, in the 80s, you know, he, he when he went there, that's when he got more national exposure. He had a few with Morocco at first for the IC title. Then they sold him into the tag team with Tony Atlas, and they did fairly well as a tag team. Um, and then after that, he just started bouncing around again. So... Rocky's an interesting guy, but um, um, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> as far as this is the days where the territory had one to two African American wrestlers, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> you 
he that's why he was a, a vagabond, like you said. He just bounced around from here and there. But he's a guy who has a case, absolutely. He has a case to be in the Hall of Fame. So I'll, I'll agree with you there. All right, uh, next category, follow the modern performers in the United States and Canada. Um, so what are who are your three here? Let's see if we can match up. All right, superstar Bill Dundee was on the ballot for the very first time this year, and he's somebody who I vouch for to be put on the ballot this year, uh, last year. And seeing him on the ballot, yeah, that was automatic because um, – I feel like he is a Hall of Famer for sure because when it comes to Memphis, yeah, Jerry Lawler's the guy, but Bill Dundee's right there with him. And maybe and Lawler, of course, is going to have more success because he was always the guy, but Dundee was his A B to A. I mean, he was a draw, top draw for many, many years as a face and a heel. Booked was a good booker in Memphis, and. Um, yeah, I mean, this was just a guy who was a local legend in that territory. And then he went to Mid-South. And this is where his, his case gets strengthened because he changed the entire promotion. Bill Watts brought him in at the end of 1983. They were a promotion that was a big man brawling territory, blood and guts. Mm-hmm. He comes in. He starts bringing that flash in. He starts bringing the lighter wrestlers and giving them pushes, like the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express and Buddy Landell. But he still has the big guys like Duggan and Butch Reed and JYD around, too. So now you have this you know, combination of the old style and the new style, and you're able to bring in a new fan base to go along with the existing fan base that you've already had. And they had humongous success. In that territory, tremendous business, set records every time they were in, basically, while he was there. And he had a hell of a run. His run lasted for almost two years before he went back to Memphis and had another big time for you with Lawler and everything like that. Now, he does have like a a strike against him because after Lawler left, the territory kind of fell for a couple of months. And that's why they had to bring Lawler back earlier than they wanted to. But... He just he bounced around from here and there and everywhere, booked in all these different places, trained wrestlers as well, um, and longevity and stand power. He, he drew into the 90s. So he was a guy who was drawing for well over 20 years. So he, he's a guy who he checks all the marks for me for being a Hall of Famer. I would agree. Um when you think about think about the time, Chris, it's the '80s, right? And so, on one TV channel with the WWF, you see all these monsters, right? These big guys that are wrestling, and then you see Memphis, and you see, okay, Lawler has size, but not the biggest guy. And the same thing with Dundee, and, and they drew. I mean, this is and and now we fast forward to 2021. It's the regular, right? You get a couple of guys that are five eight five nine, and they could put on a show, a five star match. But Dundee, for his size, I never thought of him as a little guy as much as it is. I thought of him as just a, a dynamo of a performer. Um, the booking end of it was interesting because it, it really got Mid-South off its ass. Uh, because I always thought that the, the booking and the strategy behind what Watts was doing with Ernie Ladd, I always thought that that was good. But some would say, and I, I heard on your podcast too, that the questions of whether or not Bill hotshot the territory and it's kind of like well it just brought excitement you know it just you just got tired of the preliminary matches all the time you needed to have some a little sizzle along with the steak and i think that dundee brought that um so 
his Memphis run and also him as a booker, I think that that works out uh, for him to be a Hall of Famer. I would agree with that. Yeah, and, you know, Joel Watts also gets uh, credit as well for Mid-South, you know, changing with the music videos and the production. Yeah. I think them going hand-in-hand together, you know, really was part of that. But, yeah, Dundee is a, is a definite Hall of Famer in my eyes. And, and speaking of Mid-South, Junkyard Dog. Um, again, another no-brainer to me. Um, JYD, his cultural influence is his main case. He was like the guy in New Orleans in the in the early eighties. The New Orleans Saints were not that good in the early eighties. They were not. Um, the Jazz left New Orleans. They went to Utah in, in nineteen eighty. New Orleans didn't have any of the pro sports franchise. Wrestling was their pro sports franchise, just like Mint Lawler. In Memphis, JYD was that guy, and JYD became a cultural icon in New Orleans. You know, they got um, who that who that gonna beat them Saints? Well, they were chanting that for JYD before then. Who that who that gonna beat that dog? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a phenomenon in New Orleans, and he became a major star. And the the view with the Freebirds, where he got blinded. I mean, they drew almost 40,000 people to the Superdome for his comeback match. You know, I mean, that's amazing in 1980. And he got to get on TBS and got national exposure there off of that. And then Paul Bosch brought him into Houston. He put a crowd on him in the King of Houston. I mean, he became a national wrestling phenomenon well before he went to WWF. Now, he started having his issues in Mid-South in, in, in 83. He started battling his addiction and gained weight and wasn't the, the same type of guy he was, but he still was a major draw. And then when they did the finish where re- heel wrestling too beat him for the North American title using a loaded knee. He had a loaded little thing on his knee. Yeah. And he hit him and put him out. But the, the way the finish went, it, it killed New Orleans, basically, for the rest of the run in a lot of ways. They could, they, because he barely like hit him or something like that. And New Orleans just could not take that finish. And they were pissed for many years after that. And they were never able to really get that crowd back the way it used to be. So he, he but in 84, but again, before he gets to WF in 84, he's working everywhere. He works Georgia, he works for Crockett, he works for Florida. He's bouncing around. He's working at Stagger Lee in Mid-South again with Watts, you know, with, you know, with the Midnight Express, and they're drawing amazing houses all over the territory. And a Stagger Lee gimmick, which he'd done two years earlier, right. you know. So, I mean, he, he's, he's drawing big money, and he goes to WF, which, hey, makes sense, you know. Um, so he goes to WF, and he becomes Hulk Hogan's number two guy, number two babyface. I mean, when, when Hogan's on one tour jyd is the main guy on the other tour most of the time so yeah he was a a big time drawing wf for the first year and a half he was there until his problems started catching up with him there even more and he started sliding down the cars but he's a guy that's when you think of 80s wrestling he's gonna be one of those guys that always comes up you know for the dancing the music it, it get influenced I mean, he was a major star to his community, and he's always been for, forever remembered as that. So, yeah, he is a slam dunk Hall of Famer to me. 
And there's one other one that has uh, uh, national and international acclaim that you voted for as well. Sergeant Slaughter, who, you know, Sarge had it all in the early 80s. He was amazing worker as a heel and babyface. Um, main evented for two of the big territories. Main evented for WWF and for Jim Crack Promotions. Um, feuding with Bob Backlund, huge money. And the Crockett, his different views there as U.S. champion, then transitioning to the tag view with him and Cronola against Steamboat and Youngblood. I mean, it's a legendary view. They turned thousands away in Greensboro, caused major traffic jams for the, you know, the, the big show there and uh, the final conflict. Then he goes back to WF again, draws big with Backlund again, turns babyface and becomes a national hero. And, and carries the WF in 1984. Hogan, folks don't remember this, Hogan was not around as much in 1984. He was traveling to Japan and doing different things. He never had like a real feud until the Piper feud that started in the year going 85. Slaughter was the guy. His feuds with Sheik and Volkov carried that territory for 1984. And he wanted his piece of the pie. And Vince wouldn't give it to him as far as merchandising and stuff. And he's like, I quit. I mean, he quit when he's riding high. And he goes to AWA, does very well there in the Northeast. His presence at AWA gets them to- the time slot on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Then he gets hooked up with G.I. Joe, and that becomes a major thing. I mean, he's on the cartoons. You, you, you can get it, only get his figure through a mail-in deal. And everybody I knew as kids, because I was six years old, we were all you know getting that mail-in figure because we want to start to slaughter. I mean, he is a guy who, he crossed over in a major way, and yeah, he did start deteriorating as a worker, he got bigger and as it, the decade went on, but you, I mean, you look from 1980 to 85, I mean, he's one of the main figures in wrestling, and a era where wrestling was doing amazing business, so cultural influence, in-ring, all that stuff, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, Absolutely. So for my modern era of performers, I agree with you with Junkyard Dog. Um, And again, we've talked about Junkyard Dog on the uh, podcast as well. Junkyard Dog was just uh, the man in New Orleans, in in Mid-South. And I I did see the video of really his last outing with Mid-South, that that terrible finish. You could hear the air come out of New Orleans after that finish. Just, oh, that feeling like there's no way, right? I saw the video day. Have you seen that, Chris? Because I saw it. Um, oh, yeah. Somebody had a clip of it on, on YouTube, I believe, and just the air came out. And so you knew. JYD told everybody in that locker room in Mid-South, he says, listen, man, this is coming. You know, he's coming. He's, he's taking, trying to take all the talent. So we got to get ready. We all got to get ready. And then two weeks later, JYD, JYD went to the WWF. Uh, he, yeah. told, he told everybody to get ready, and he was leaving himself. And um, Watts could never replace him. He tried. That never was, could do it. That, that tells you right there how important that guy was. He would, he would, you know, try black wrestler after black wrestler after black wrestler, and he could never replicate the dog. Sergeant Slaughter is interesting, and he's on my list as well. So I have JYD from Modern Era and Sergeant Slaughter. So I agree with you. Just a, a just a note about Slaughter. I just wanted to bring up to you. You mentioned the the tag team. I honestly thought Chris. The best tag team feud match I ever saw was Steamboat and Youngblood against uh, Carnotal and Slaughter. Just because Rock and Roll and Midnight was my favorite, but it wasn't a blood feud. 
But I thought that Steamboat and Youngblood against uh, Cornell and Slaughter, it was just so physical. It wasn't pretty like rock and roll against Midnight or or, or Midnight against the Fantastics or the Rockers against um, Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. It wasn't quite like that, right? So I always thought that that was like the creme de la creme. And also just the change in Slaughter. We, we've seen the films of Slaughter at, at, um, in Mid-Atlantic. You remember the suits? He'd be out there with Caudill. He'd have the suits on. It wasn't about a tent hunt. He didn't have the whistle. He was really out there kind of as a businessman, and I really liked that. You know, talking about the Cadillacs and all that. He was a, a different Slaughter. He got, and, of course, his battles with Pat Patterson, that's one of the best you know, rivalries uh, in Madison Square Garden to see that boot camp match. I thought that that was awesome. And, you know, being in the Midwest, I mean, in AWA, Vern country, we saw um, Slaughter come through Chicago and also in the Northeast when they were doing shows in Atlantic City. And you could see the metamorphosis of Slaughter. I mean, just the ultimate baby face. And then just the whole thing with, with Hogan uh, during the Gulf War. I mean, who had the balls to do that? You're willing to put your family and yourself on the line to win the, be the WWF champion at the time and go through that while we're going through a war, that's balls from Slaughter. I think that he definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so um, I also added Kamala to the list. And, and I added Kamala for modern era because, Chris, I mean, again, we talk about Rocky Johnson and some of these other uh, wrestlers, Kamala all over the world, all over the country. The run with the Von Erics in Dallas uh, would, would wrestle in the, in the Northeast. Uh, Kamala bitter at the end saying, you know, I should have had a bigger piece of the pie in my matchup against The Undertaker, you know, and just but that he was uh, one of these well-traveled veterans that was all over the country, around the world and a believable character. Who knew that his first vignette was behind Jerry Jarrett's home? Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, and the great story that Jerry Lawler tells, you know, as Jerry was always putting the, the paint on him in Memphis. And Kamala said, Jerry, why do you always put a banana on my stomach? Said, it's not a banana. It's a crescent moon, Kamala. It's not a banana. Uh, so, so, I mean, Kamala deserves, um, I believe, and if not now, Chris, at some point, I don't know if he's ever going to fall off the ballot anytime soon, but for a guy that was a heel, his entire run until toward the end with the WWE, that guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. What Kamala has for him is his gimmick. He's a guy, He's one of the most memorable gimmicks of his era. Um, and he drew everywhere he went. I mean, and everybody brought him in at least once, basically. But the problem was with Kamala, he burned just by everywhere he went. But he would quit without notice. Yeah. <laughs> he was not known for being a great businessman. He would up and leave whenever he felt like it and would leave promotions hanging. Um so, I mean, that's something he's kind of got that Bruiser Brody in him in that way. But, I mean, he made, he made some great money, you know, for, for those years there. And, I mean, he, like, he was a top guy for a long, long time in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, you can't deny, I mean, he had a great feud with Hogan, you know, in, in 86 and 87. I mean, he was, him and Orndorff, him and Orndorff were the two main feuds for Hogan going going into the Andre feud beginning, and you know they were like on ice in case Andre couldn't make WrestleMania as being a Hogan opponent for WrestleMania. So who knows how different things would have been if Andre couldn't have made it, and they ran with Hogan and Kamala at the Silver Dome. Who knows how different things would have been? But uh, yeah, I mean. 
Kamal's a guy, I, he's not on my immediate radar, but I definitely see him being a guy who should be under consideration, absolutely. By the way, just a quick sidebar. Chris, what was the first time that you saw Andre slammed? What What match? <laughs> The first time I saw him slam was, I mean, the first time I saw him slam was WrestleMania 3, because I was eight. Yeah. Well, I, I was almost eight years old. But then, you know, I heard about it, you know, after that. And then in the 90s is when I started seeing him getting slammed in other places, Ronnie Garvin slamming him, getting slammed in Japan by different people. In fact, I just watched Ricky Choshu slam him the other day. And, uh, I mean, so Andre would, would get slammed. He would allow people to slam him. You know, on occasion, absolutely. But and Hogan, uh, Hogan slammed him in 1980 on on WWE television in just a TV match. Yeah. So, I mean, it happened. But the way they sold it and the way they played it up, I mean, that was a you know that was a big deal at that time. Little did us youngsters know what the real deal was. I'm pretty sure those those older fans were like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. this guy, I mean, just, just this guy years ago. What's the big deal? Yeah, you know, so. you know what? Yeah, that's a, actually it's a bad question because that's all of us. I think if if we didn't have the territory tapes, we wouldn't have seen uh, Andre slam until we saw Hogan do it. So unless you live in Northeast and you remember eighty, that's that's yeah. true. And, and so like so after that, the first time I saw Andre slam was those Houston tapes with Harley Race. And he and he, yeah, and he slammed he slammed Andre on the floor. I'm like, what the, what? <laughs> like, and, and with e, by the way, with ease, with, with that, without any problem. That was a lighter Andre. I understand at the time, but then we started to see it. I saw it uh, in Japan too. I'm like, okay, this was a regular thing. But it was. But here's a funny thing. You would think that that would be like the finish, or at least close to it. It was just a spot. It's a transition spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's Andre. It's like, yeah. That should be the finish in some places, shouldn't it? I mean, if you slam the giant, that should be it. Uh, uh, yeah, it didn't happen that way. Okay, so I need your help because I've stained from Mexico and Japan this first time around. Even though there's some names that popped that said, no, i got to get down to, at some point, some of the non-wrestlers to try to fill out the rest of my ballot. So can you quickly go through your J- Japanese and Mexico candidates? Yes, uh, Japan, I only went with one this time, uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara. Now, let, let me add this caveat uh, to my ballot. Uh, I never vote for active wrestlers, especially ones that are in their prime. Mm-hmm. Dave has a rule where, you know, if you're 35 years old or you've been in the business for a certain amount of time, I think it's 15 years, that you get on the ballot. So, Kazuchika Okada is on the ballot for the first time this year. And, I mean, what can you say about that guy? He's, he's a Hall of Fame guy, but I don't need to vote for him. All, the other, all these other people are going to vote for him. I, I like to use my votes on people that can't help themselves anymore, basically. You know, they, they can't add to their resume. So <clears throat> I like to vote for a more of a older grouping than the current guys. I didn't vote for John Cena when he was on it. I didn't vote for Tanahashi. And it's not because I don't think they're Hall of Famers. I just, I don't vote for current guys that are still in their prime working. So, Japan, I voted for Yoshiaki Fujiwara. Now, Fujiwara is a guy who has been around forever. Uh, New Japan was a tra- one of the trainers in New Japan in the 70s and 80s uh, while he was undercard wrestler there. Um, Got over during the big Choshu feud as one, you know, as a tough guy who would bleed and 
you know, got the fans got into him heavy, and he got spotlighted really for the first time there. And then uh, left with Makira um, Maeda, went to the UWF, became a top guy there, comes back to New Japan, has built his rep up, and, you know, gets a big push in New Japan again in the UWF feud. And then leaves and goes to the second version of UWF. Again, same thing, main event guy, top draw. Then forms his own company at the UWF Splits for Russell Fujiwara Gumi. They do big business for a couple of years with Masakatsu Fanaki and Minoru Suzuki as his top young guys and him being the number one guy. And then just started bouncing around Japan for you know to the rest of his career, going here, there, and everywhere, and always being the main event guy drawing. But the training is, is, is important to this. He trains so many guys. And being a fantastic worker for so long that um, – I think he's a Hall of Famer for those reasons alone. Uh, and Mexico? Mexico, Mexico for years has been the toughest one because there were so many guys that were on the ballot that couldn't get in because the Lucha voters couldn't get together. They couldn't get together and get these guys in. And finally, that log jam has kind of weakened some. So I only had to use two spots for Mexico. And I used my spots for Los Brazos, Brazo de Oro, Brazo de Plata, Super Porky, for those who know him in that, and El Brazo. Um, one of the first major trios in Lucha Libre. Um, amazingly influential, fantastic workers, big draws for years. Um, of course, Porky uh, became a phenomenon among wrestling fans as uh, his career went on, but... Uh, yeah, I think they're they're definitely Hall of Famers, and just and just like them, another brother act was Hermano Dinamita, Cien Caras, was called Año dos Mil and Universal dos Mil. Um, Cien Caras alone probably could be a Hall of Famer. Um, he was a major draw for many years in Mexico on his own. Mascara Año dos Mil also solid, solid top guy, the singles guy. Universal dos Mil not as much. Um, he was mainly with the brothers, but. When needed to, I mean, he, he could draw a big house, too. So these guys had staying power, just like the Brazos. I mean, they were around for years and years and years and years and years. True money, major acts in Mexico. I think both both of them should be in the Hall of Fame. This is why I got attracted to the Zellner podcast, the Zellner pods, as we call it in the streets, because of the way he could just roll off those Mexican names and those Japanese names. I tweeted, I think I tweeted you once. I was like, man, I can't believe how you do that so easily. That's amazing. I mean, I know you're investing in the product, but my God, I mean, it's so good the way you say those things. And not even a stumble, never a stumble. It's awesome. Yeah, my favorite one is uh, Solar, who, you know, I love the role that are Solar. Solar. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing, man. Well, uh, I, I went to the to Europe on my ballot, Chris. So I had two. I chose Adrian Street and Johnny Saint. Now I told Johnny Saint because you know, again, being an AWA guy growing up in the Midwest, we saw a lot of Billy Robinson. And you know, maybe as a kid, I didn't get it. I understood how technical he was. I know that was a Vern guy because. You know, Vern loved the amateurs and definitely the technical style. You know, again, I growing up in Chicago, you know what that means? That means 10,000 squash matches, 5,000 great promos in one angle a year. So, uh, so with Billy Robinson, because he was able to train Johnny Saint and they worked together, that the whole thing with Jim, Jim Brakes for the British 
lightweight championship in the 70s. You know, Vern sometimes would roll some of those old films. I know Bob Luce would do it in the, um, the WWA as well. They would show some of those old films every now and then. The world of sports stuff I learned about later on in life and how important that was for the country. We see him now rolled out at NXT UK as a commissioner, but there's a lot of respect there. And I've heard I've heard uh, William Regal, uh, you know, talk about him as well and the importance of him in the world of sport. So I voted for Johnny Saint there. And again, just reminds me of Billy Robinson in a lot of ways. And of course, adorable Adrian Street. Uh, first time I saw him, it was in the magazines. And then to be able to see him... Uh, let me think now. I saw him first in the magazines and then, of course, with tape trading and just, you know, some VHS tapes here and there. I saw Street and I said, wow, you know, clearly he's going to be uh, he's going to have a lot of heat because the wrestlers perceive him as being gay. So that means that's a negative. And you come to find out later in life that actually his wife, Miss Linda, is tougher even than Adrian Street. But Street could could stretch it, and he was a, uh, he was a heat seeker. And so I believe that, if not now, at some point, Adrian Street deserves consideration. Adrian Street's probably in the wrong category. Um, I mean, he had a great run, you know, in Europe for years before he came here, but he didn't get his, you know, big success worldwide until he came to the U.S. They so probably should be in... Uh, Maybe the modern category or historical category. I think that would probably get him a better shot at getting in, mm-hmm. actually, in that regard. I mean, I saw Adrian Street as a kid. I mean, we had uh, Continental in Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, I saw him there. I'm like, <laughs> I thought he was hilarious, you know, at the time. Because here's the, the heat with Adrian Street. He's playing this effeminate type guy. But when he's in the ring, he is so tough. It's yeah. all its all about, you know, it's the mind games he's playing with the opponent where he'd go and kiss him and stuff like that. But everybody knows this guy's a tough guy. You know, I mean, he is amazingly tough. And Bill Watts was still done on commentary when he was in Mid-South. Like, he doesn't need to, to do this, this gimmick, you know. He doesn't need to do this act. No, he's doing it so he can screw around with these guys and their heads. So I thought that was amazing. That's a great way of portraying it. And you kind of knew that him and Linda were together. You know, it's just the way they the way they act around each other and stuff like that. So you, you kind of knew that. But I mean, he had a hell of a run in the South. Uh, Dusty loved him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you turned him babyface twice. Turned him babyface in Florida and Crockett. Um, he, he drew money everywhere he went. It was a was, was a big act, and uh, he's a guy who. Uh, Influence as well. He's a guy who definitely has a chance. And like I said, I think he's just in the wrong section, sadly. So maybe without a change for long. Johnny Saint is a guy who, I mean, he worked forever and ever and ever. Yeah. But he, nobody really got got him until they saw that, that uh, match he did in Michinoku Pro in 96. Like, wow, who is this guy? You know, and then that take training community back in those days. Mm-hmm. And then people started, you know, finding out about him. And then once, you know, the whole world of sports stuff started airing again in the UK, people started to see them there. And then, you know, he became such a highly influential guy among the current state of indie workers in the 2000s, working through Chikara and doing sessions there. Hugely influential on CM Punk, Chris Hero, Colt Cabana. And then, of course, working with WWE years later. Um, he's a guy who um, has a case, absolutely has a case. Uh, uh, amazing worker, absolutely. Chris, it's a it's a different conversation that we will have, but one day I I'll never understand why you know like World of Sport, for instance, or New Japan, or 
you know, even Mexico, some of these other places, how come they did not have um, uh, distribute, you know, to distribute their product to the American audience with American announcers? You, you know, in 1991, when wrestling was on his ass, you know, in the shits, it would have been nice for to have something different to watch, right? You know, after WCW closes and you're just watching the WWF product before um, TNA came around, it would have been nice to have uh, like a a second, third, fourth brand internationally to be able to watch in America. I'll never understand why the distribution did not come to America because I think they could have been printing money, right? If you got tired of the WWF product at that time in some of those lean years for the business, it would have been great to be able to see some of that stuff and not have to do it through tape trading. Yeah, I mean, God knows. I mean, it would have been amazing to have the opportunity to watch stuff like that back in those days. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it just it wasn't in the card for us until the internet. And now we can see everything, pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just wrestling in general, you know. I mean, it... it we always wanted to watch Japan, you know, when you got it. Some people were lucky. They were able to get the, the tapes, uh, you know, a week later or whatever. And they had local video stores in some of these major cities or had the connections. So they were able to see stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it would have been great to see uh, to see that stuff before we were actually able to. Uh, Chris, lastly, let me go through your non-wrestlers. You had uh, Dave Brown, longtime Memphis announcer, Bobby Davis. We got to talk about him because uh, he – I mean, what could have been with Bobby Davis, James Melby, Don Owen, and Ted Turner? Who's your favorite out of the nine wrestlers you voted for for the Wrestling Observer? My favorite? Um, Ted Turner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, I mean, uh, local bias, yes, but where's wrestling without Ted Turner? I mean, think about it. Where is wrestling without Ted Turner? For, you know, the throwing WTCG Channel 17 out of Atlanta on the satellite. You know, as, as Terry Funk said back then to people, that has changed the game. So now people from around the country can watch wrestling from other territories. Another territory. And once that, that show got over and it was a hot TV show and you got that show on, on TV and then you have your local show on TV that may not be as good like wait a minute, why why can't we have this? And it it, it spawned stars and stuff like that, and people's power got got bigger in that regard. And then changing the TBS and getting more and more penetration around. And then, you know, I mean, where else is is, – where's the World World Wrestling Federation if Ted doesn't broker the deal with Vince and Jim Crockett? Mm -hmm. Or Vince sells his slot – to Crockett for a million dollars, and that million dollars goes into the war chest to help fund WrestleMania. Because the story goes, if if he hadn't got that million dollars, WWF would have been in a bad, bad financial condition at the WrestleMania. And who knows where a WWF would be at in 1985 if that doesn't happen. So, yeah, he was part of that whole deal. And then buying Jim Crockett Promotions and saving that company and putting it on, on his network, and we all saw about the good and the bad with WCW, but it kept a national promotion on television for 12 years as competition. And, in fact, you know, for 83 weeks being the top wrestling company in the world. So, 
I mean, he, he's got so many things on his side and love the business, love wrestling, always credited wrestling with being one of the main things that made TBS and Turner what it is today. So, yeah, he is number one on, on that list for sure in my mind. On my uh, non-wrestlers list, I went uh, Jim Crockett Jr., Ted Turner, outside the 10, Don Owen, and Bob Cottle. Uh, I don't know how many years left for Bob to be on the ballot, but I just think that for everything he did in Mid-Atlantic and into the NWA, honestly, Chris, I think that Bob Cottle may be arguably one of the greatest announcers, non-wrestlers, to do color. And that's, and that's saying something when you think about Lance Russell and Dave Brown. But I think that Bob, working with with um, with Jim Ross, I think Bob was a great partner with Jim. A very underrated booth, I believe, in the NWA in the 80s into the 90s. I thought that they had they were a really good one-two punch. Uh, and so I think Bob deserves his flowers. Don Owen, and, you know, for the modern wrestling fan, they may not get Portland wrestling. They may like the action, but the announcing was was it. It was a little dull, a little dry. Uh, but I like that Portland wrestling. And Don Owen was uh, was a big promoter. We all know about Roddy Piper. When he was in WWF, he did not want to wrestle uh, for the WWF in Portland because he didn't want to go against Don Owen. That's how important Don was to that uh, to that area. And I would agree with you. Ted Turner would probably be the the best of my list. Jim Crockett Jr., obviously, what he did for the NWA. But Ted is the guy. I'm surprised he's not even in the WWE Hall of Fame, quite frankly. But <laughs> but Ted, but Ted, I mean, listen, bygones be bygones, right? Vince lets a lot of Vince. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ultimate Warrior is in there. Like, all these other well, guys. But yeah, not Ted, huh? He worked, he worked for him. You know, that, that's the that, that's thing I always say about WWE and AEW. You know, Vince will never treat that as a like he treated WCW because he had that personal vendetta against Ted Turner. Yeah. He doesn't have personal vendetta against the cons. So, I mean, it's just his, his personal vendetta against Ted Turner when they were feuding with WCW, Billionaire Ted. He never talked about Eric Bischoff. Wouldn't even say his name. It was all about Ted Turner's wrestling company, Ted Turner. When Ted Turner just was the owner and wasn't part of any day-to-day operations by any means. Right. But it was always Ted Turner, Ted Turner, Ted Turner, Ted Turner. I mean, it's just Vince's hard-on for Ted Turner. Man. So the legacy of Ted Turner, CNN, Atlanta Braves, baseball, Andy Griffin, and World Championship Wrestling, right? Yes, those those are three. Absolutely. Braves, Andy Griffin, and World Championship Wrestling was what propelled TBS, you know, and Turner into the stratosphere. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I love your list, man, and I'm glad that we were able to talk about this. I just wanted to share my ballot with you. How do you think I did? You think I'm hanging in there, my first ballot, my first swing? Yeah, a very interesting ballot, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I mean, we shared a lot of the same choices. So, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, I think you did very well in your first ballot. I mean, I, here's the thing. I see some of these ballots that people put out, and they only put out like one or two names on it. I'm like, you just wasted the ballot. <laughs> oh, I hate that, yeah. yeah. I always try to get the 10. I always, I, I, and I, there was some tough cuts. You know, Akira was my last cut. And, I, you know, if I get a spot, then next year I'll probably be on it. Unless somebody new comes along, I think should be on, been there. I mean, there there are people, uh, Johnny Rougeau is another one. Who, if people did the research on yeah. him, that's uh, Jacques Raymond's uncle. If they did research on him, they go, my God, this guy should be in the Hall of Fame. Look at the big business he drew for years in Montreal. So there's so many people that, 
that, that and, 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 and Enrique Torres is another one mm-hmm. who uh, is, is, a, is a hell of a, a choice. Bull Curry. I mean, there's so many guys on this list that should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough every year to, 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 to narrow it down officially on who you want in. Chris, tell everybody about the Between the Sheets podcast. All right, Between the Sheets comes out every Monday. So uh, go check that out on all your major podcast services. And BetweenTheSheetsPod.com will take you directly to all the pod- podcasts there. So that's every Monday. Of course, Hall on Bad Street is my podcast that I do every so often. And right now we've been focusing on the history of NWA Wildside, independent wrestling promotion based on the Cornelia Georgian in the 2000s. With uh, Dan and Dragon Wilson and Jeff G. Bailey, who were very integral to that promotion. So that, that's a love letter to, to them. We'll be doing another one of those shows this month. So been looking for that. And of course, our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. We put at least one show out every month. $5 a month gets you access to the entire audio archive that we've done in the last five plus years. And there's a lot of audio up there and a lot of people love the Patreon shows because it is a true deep dive into one centralized subject and we go deep. And right now we are uh, in the middle of a series on John Collins' main event championship wrestling a short of independent promotion in 2001, which... Uh, <laughs> was very controversial in many ways. We did part one last month with our dear friend King Kingsport, Bo James, who mm-hmm. promoted with John Collins. And one of the few guys actually got paid. And uh, we'll be <laughs> do- doing December part two, which is going to be really nuts because then we'll get into all of his legal issues and the, the promotion shutting down. Total craziness. I mean, you talk about salacious wrestling. This is it. I mean, it's a combination of Herb Abrams, Paul Heyman, and... Global Wrestling Federation, Kongi Sports, all in the one on this show. So you definitely want to check that out. In 2022, we've already talked about some ideas for shows in 2022, so you definitely don't want to miss that. So patreon.com slash between the sheets, $5 a month. Yeah, and it's also very entertaining. Not only informational, but also very entertaining. A lot of sidebars in this podcast, but it's always interesting. And also special guests always stop by, too. You mentioned Bo James. Uh, Ghost of Canonia, Canonias. I think that that's. I mean, it, it, it's it's so it can be so hilarious this show, and but also information as well. I always think about your podcast like this, Zellner. I always say if the world came to an end, people will be able to find this audio and learn so much. I think that it like that's the spot right there. It's like, boy, what is all this information? And like, if the world came to an end, they could find that and they'd learn so much about wrestling. That's what I love about it. I appreciate it. And one thing that we love to do, especially on the Patreon shows, is break the narratives. Because there's narratives that have been set for many years throughout the newsletters on certain people and subjects. And once we get this information that we've culled from the newsletters, and not just newsletters, from advertising magazines, broadcasting magazines, different sources... Once you put it together and you sit there and you look at it and you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, this is not what's really what really happened here. This is what's going on. Mm-hmm. We're breaking narratives and creating the new narratives about a lot of things, especially ECW related. So, um, yeah, th- these shows have been uh, been amazing to do. They're fantastic. That's our best audio. Yeah, we put, uh, the shows we put out weekly are great. I love doing them, mm-hmm. and we get we get to cover everything. You know, on these shows, it's centralized and it's 
thorough and deep and we're able to focus on one particular thing and um yeah it, it is great stuff so I, if uh, you enjoy historical wrestling content you definitely be a member of our patreon I'm a big fan of the Zelda podcast, and you will as well. Betweenthesheetspod.com is where you go and check out the podcast. Chris, I'm glad you spent time with me here in Chicago. I just wanted to talk to you about the Hall of Fame and hope to get a chance to talk to you real soon. Yeah, and, and, and real quick, uh, you know, some Georgia boys are playing for the Bears right now. Yeah. You know, and uh, both played UGA and from Georgia. And come on, Bears. Let's, let's get it together. <laughs> let's get it together. You know, if you need to get a new coach, do it. Let's get it together. Let's get these guys some success. Do it for Roquan and Ogletree. Is that what you're saying? Do it for those yeah, two. Yeah, Justin Fields, too. Justin, Justin Fields. Fields too. He's, he's one of ours, even though he left him with Ohio State, but he's still one of ours. Yeah. So, yeah. Do it. Get it together. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm holding up George on my end up here, man. You do what you do down there, but up here I'm wearing the G all the time. I'm representing, so I'm hope I got my fingers and toes and everything else crossed for the national championship. Hopefully, we can get a rematch and finally knock it down for the first time in a long time. Let's just be Michigan first. Let's go one step at a time. Oh, look at you. Thank, thank you, Kirby. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Right, one step at a time, one game at a time. Right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for joining me, man. Absolutely, anytime. Ah, great to talk to Chris Zellner. And again, you can go to betweenthesheetspod.com. And my official ballot for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. I'm so excited that I was able to do that. Rocky Johnson, Ole Anderson, Sputnik Monroe, Junkyard Dog, Sergeant Slaughter, Kamala, Johnny Saint, and Adrian Street in Europe. The non-wrestlers, Jim Crockett Jr., Ted Turner, Don Owen, the Portland um, the guy, as well as Bob Cottle. Don Owen is a great uh, promoter in Portland, and Bob Cottle, longtime announcer. And uh, it was great to be able to do that for the first time and go through some of those historical names. Again, some of those wrestlers we talked about have passed away, and they um, are in the archives of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Okay. So, I want to let you know that on December, let me check my calendar, December 18th, I will team with Mark Henry, and we will do Sirius XM's Busted Open from 8 to 11 a.m. Central Time on Saturday, the 18th. And of course, you know, Fridays are always busy in wrestling because you got SmackDown and you've got uh, the AEW Rampage show. Well, after... Those shows are over on the 18th on Saturday morning. Mark Henry and I will do a show together. If you don't have SiriusXM, you say you're having the car, but I don't get it. Uh, I think it's free in the month of December. So you, you have no excuse but to uh, listen to us. 8 to 11, you should be listening to Mark Henry, the world's strongest man, our producer uh, for AEW and announcer for AEW. So we're going to have a fun time. We always have a fun time with Mark Henry, 8 to 11. Uh, on December the 18th. By the way, I'm really excited about what we're doing on YouTube, youtube.com. And I want you to go to Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday and subscribe. And you say, why, Hood? Why do I have to do that? Because there's content there that may not be on the podcast, you know, whether it's on the ESPN Chicago app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get in this podcast. Thanks so much for downloading it. But if you go to my YouTube page, there's additional Video, my thoughts on stuff on my night raw, my thoughts on stuff 
on AEW Dynamite or SmackDown. You just never know, right? So check it out, my YouTube page, youtube.com. Look for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday there. And sometimes I'll post it on Instagram and Twitter, but I want you to go there and subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. Also, scheduled to be joining us this week as we record this on the week of uh, December 6th, looking to talk to Cesaro from the WWE because WWE is going to be in town. SmackDown is in town. So we'll be talking to Cesaro. At least we're going to try to get him on the show on Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. Hard times. Hard times is waking up every single morning and going to a job that you don't like so you can take care of people that you love. Hard times is working on a vehicle 20 and 30 times so it can get you back and forth to work so you can save up enough money to buy something nice for your family. Mike, hard times for me is having to look at my son every single night and have to explain to him why you did what you did to him. To have to talk him down from the images that he has in his head of you taking a chair and continuously hitting me across the back. Mike, tonight, I will bring you hard times. I will bring you everything you asked for. You wanted hard times, Mike? Tonight, you'll get it. Glad that you're with me here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday as we have our extended edition of TWT. Great to talk to Chris Zeldin earlier. But now, let's talk about the National Wrestling Alliance. Well, they had some surprises that occurred on this program. And I will tell you that the NWA has gone through quite the transition since the pandemic. That is for sure. And so, I watched the NWA... Hard Times 2 pay-per-view emanating from Atlanta, Georgia. There's a lot I have to say about this pay-per-view. Who you just heard from, by the way, if you don't know, was uh, Trevor Murdoch. He is the new NWA World Heavyweight Championship as he promoted his matchup against Mike Knox. That was the main event of this one. Okay, so let's talk about this show. The reason why that I watched this show on a very busy uh, Saturday night for professional wrestling and combat sports is, you know, I know there's a show in Mexico. There was a couple other shows happening, but I asked on the poll question at wrestling TWT, I asked a question. I said, okay, should I order hard times Two and talk about it on the podcast? And I didn't have a lot of votes for it, but I had some votes and the majority of the votes of the majority of you said I should watch NWA hard times to and talk about it on the on the podcast. So here I am talking about it on the podcast. So well, there's a lot to talk about with this one. I will tell you that I have not watched the NWA on a weekly basis. And the reason why is because there's so much going on, right? Not just in my life, but in professional wrestling. Uh, I believe you have to pay like $5 on YouTube or something like that, or, or $5 on Fight TV or something to be able to watch the weekly show. Uh, and I'm just not willing to do that, <laughs> especially with an organization that's in transition. When Dave Lagana was working there and working hand-in-hand with owner Billy Corrigan, Chicago's own, 
I thought that the company was going in the right direction because they started off so well on YouTube. It drove me to YouTube every week to see the 10 Pounds of Gold series. If you've never seen that, go back and check it out. This whole thing with Nick Aldis and the 10 Pounds of Gold, it was so well done, so well produced, and it just hooked you, right? And this was not even a touring brand. They were just telling stories on YouTube, which I thought was really, really cool. Lagana's out because of something that he did in his personal life. Uh, and uh, I knew I've known Dave for a long time. I've not spoken to him since he was released by the NWA. Actually, I believe he resigned from the NWA. Uh, and it's a different product for me. Uh, not necessarily a bad product, but it's just different. And also, even though I'm willing to pay the money I paid to Fight TV to watch the pay-per-view uh, and the last few pay-per-views, the weekly shows, I just can't do it. It's not because the action's bad. It's just because... That's just another thing I got to pay for to be able to watch wrestling. I'm not that invested in the NWA that I'm paying for it weekly. I can't do that. But I will order the pay-per-views. I'm sure that Billy Corrigan will like that. I hope to have Billy on the show one day just to talk wrestling. And I know you Smashing Pumpkins fans and uh, those that love music want me to talk to him about music. But I do want to ask him about the 2022 and beyond for the NWA. So let me just start off first with uh, what happened in Atlanta. As far as just everything before I even get to the matches. So the NWA show was at the GPB Studios. This is where they've done their TVs for uh, a few years now. Month by month they have it. And usually it's a great crowd. They open up and I see empty seats everywhere. Now, I'm not usually distracted by empty seats. Hell, you know, Monday Night Raw had empty seats all over Long Island um, when they had their show. It didn't affect me. I'm just really watching the ring. But, of course, you see what's in the hard camera shot. And you can't help but to think, okay, it's a, it's really well done. If you've never watched the NWA show, it is exactly how the old school used to be. Studio wrestling, where you've got the shiny floor and the great NWA logo on the ring skirt, as well as in the ring, the NWA logo go just as it was like in 1984 the type of crowd that's there the flags are hanging uh, up in the ceilings and the rafters it's perfect it's a replica and an ode to what used to be but i noticed there's a lot of empty seats there and i'm like wait a minute now wait a minute so where are the people joe galley the, the play-by-play guy for the nwa said that, well, because of what's going on with COVID-19, you know, there's going to be just some open seating and people just have to be separated because of COVID. So there's three big rows. There's a left side, there's a big middle and a right. No one's sitting on the left and right side. And, and And that's got, I was thinking, wait, I'm used to seeing a full house there and it was not. Usually, no matter what, it's always full on TV, but there was no one on the left side, no one on the right side, and a few people in the middle. And he said because of the COVID uh, protocols that they cannot have a full building for the uh, the studios, the GPB studios in Atlanta. I'm like, okay, all right, so it won't be a full house there. All right, fine, watch the action. Before I even talk about the action, can I tell you about the the worst booth in wrestling? It's what I saw on Saturday night. Joe Galley is a competent, solid play-by-play man. Tim Storm, because he's been wrestling for a long time, I think that his color is good and getting better. I think that he, it's very good. 
Um, I don't know how many, how often Tim's going to wrestle now moving forward, but he's a grizzled veteran, and he was one of the guys I believed in on this whole launch of the NWA because the 10 pounds of gold was really surrounding around Aldis and Tim Storm. And his real life story of him being a school teacher, his mom is a big influence in his life. You know, Tim is, uh, is he in the 60s already? I know he's north of 55 at least. Point is, though, that he's a guy that brings credibility to the broadcast. And then, well, there's someone else in the broadcast that's just not very good. Just not very good. Velvet Sky has to be one of the worst announcers on a mainstream uh, wrestling company uh, that I've seen. And I know it's the NWA, and know that's really YouTube, and they're on Fight TV, but Velvet Sky is terrible on commentary. Terrible. You could tell that she's not being coached. Uh, there's not a lot of emphasis. And I know that she's excited to be there, but this is why the WWE does what they do. They make sure that the announcers don't step on one another all the time. You say the same thing in AEW. Somehow, some way, the Shivani, Ross, and Excalibur booth seems to work as far as continuity. You may not like all three together, but at least they're not stepping on one another constantly. And I know that Velvet has been in that position for more than a few months now, her stepping on Tim Storm and Joe Galley sucks. It's bad. And it was it was kind of like three people all in a party just kind of talking over one another watching a wrestling show. Well, you know, as Tim Storm tries to tell stories and Joe Galley's doing the play-by-play, Velvet's not doing much of anything. And she's not in, you know, I've heard her a couple of times now. It's not good. It's not good. I'm not even sure why that she's in there. She needs to be able to understand that it's one at a time as everyone has a role. If people don't, you know, people always bitch about Byron Saxton and, and what's happening with the Raw booth or whenever some of these guys are on Smack, at least they have their roles. It's defined. One person talks at a time and they all know their defined roles. This here was just a calamity. It was hard to listen to. Hard. Joe, again, a very good play-by-play guy. He, he, he grew on me, and he's, and he's very, very good. And I think Tim's very good. But I don't know why she's in that booth. She's not good. She's just talking over everybody. And um, it's almost like she can't hear that Joe and Tim are talking. Uh, and then she just kind of just interrupts and just kind of talks when she wants to. And it's not good. Um, so I'm very down in that booth. That has to change because, as I've always said, as a broadcaster, you're there to tell stories, right? And so you can watch the action, but the, the, the number one thing about a wrestling show is the credibility of the announcer. Whether it's a babyface or heel, it doesn't matter. But when you're just talking to talk and you're not listening to the other two partners, it's just bad. And so I, I'm down in that booth. But as far as the action is concerned, so after the, um, some of the pre-show matches... In which uh, Allison Kay and Marty Bell were able to win their match. I really like that tag team a lot. They're friends. They're all over social media, by the way. Um, to see Homicide uh, be able to be in the qualifying junior heavyweight match, I saw some of that. But then we get to the main card. Austin Aries is back. You can't, well, you can't keep a good man down. Austin Aries defeated Red Titus. 
a qualifying match for the Junior Heavyweight Championship. It was what you expect from Austin Aries, just a solid professional, Rhett Titus, a longtime tag team uh, wrestler in Ring of Honor. And it was just a good match. It was a nine-minute match, and it's, it's what you expect from Austin Aries, like perfect uh, as far as everything he does in the ring, um, can sell. Babyface or heel, he's just a solid wrestler. So not surprised that Austin Aries let off the show, and it was a really, really solid match. Mickey James against Kiera Hogan for the uh, Knockouts Championship. Um, you know, Mickey James and Kiera Hogan, you know, they both were kind of like babyfaces, and they were like shaking each other's hands, and it was kind of one of those matches, but Mickey James came out on top. This particular card, the way it was lined up, and there was a lot of title matches on this. It was 13 matches, 13 matches total, and there was uh, nine on the uh, on the main pay-per-view card. A lot of matches there was for championships. Uh, but it was kind of old school in which it wasn't just the NWA. It was Ring of Honor represented. Impact was represented as well. So it was kind of interesting that they let other companies come in and showcase their talent on the NWA pay-per-view. Um, we've seen this before. Way back in the day, the NWA would allow other wrestling companies' stars to be on their mega shows. And same thing with uh, this one here at Hard Times 2. Um, this uh, Matt Taven and, and Mike Bennett, OGK. Uh, had a ROH tag team matchup against Aaron Stevens and Kratos. So Aaron Stevens, and again, I have not been watching the show, but I've watched the pay-per-view. Aaron Stevens, I'm watching him like, hmm. Aaron Stevens seems like he's lost. He doesn't know if he wants to be a babyface or a heel. Kratos is a big guy and just like a believable big guy. You see him in there and he's just like, oh my God, like he is a monster in there. And it's almost like Kratos is trying to tell Aaron Stevens kind of what to do and trying to get him more aggressive. And Stevens seems lost. It's an interesting story about Aaron Stevens. Um, uh, so... Uh, Taven and Bennett look good. I'd love to see them more as a tag team. You know, ROH will be closing the doors soon, but I wonder if Taven and Bennett will be continuing to be a tag team. But currently, as we record this, they are the tag team champions. Camille defeated Molina uh, for the NWA World's Women's Championship. So Camille retains. Um, then we saw Tyrus against Sion. Now, if you've seen my Twitter feed at Wrestling TWT, you know that Sion is this mass wrestler. And I retweet his promos because his promos are very good. I haven't even looked up to see who he really is. Don't care. Uh huh. I just like that Sion is there and Tyrus is the television champion. It was a no disqualification match for the NWA World Television Championship. Uh, and uh, Tyrus was the winner over Sion. Tyrus, the big guy, he's lumbering, moving around, and still can go. They went 15 minutes. There was chairs involved. It was kind of physical. And I get a chance to see Austin Idol. Is there heat? Is there heat? Austin Idol was there uh, in the corner of Tyrus. And, um, you know, it was not a, uh, not a five-star match. It wasn't a great match, but it was it was a spectacle for sure because there was so much, so many chairs and uh, a lot of physicality in that matchup. So I thought that was really good. My least favorite match on here is La, uh, La Rebellion against The End. God almighty. Like, I don't understand what the end is supposed to be. Um, that was a hard match to watch. That's for the NWA World Tag Team Championships. Nothing against Rebellion, but their partner, but their opponents, though, the end, I didn't understand that match. I didn't think that went well at all. Um, 
<laughs> it just I just did not. Um, Chris Adonis, do you remember the uh, the master lock? Chris Adonis national championship matchup against uh, Judas with Father James Mitchell. Remember Father James Mitchell? He's been in TNA. He was in uh, WCW as well. Good to see him, man. That guy, he's got a mind for the business, James Mitchell. You've seen him on um, Dark Side of the Ring as well, uh, on one of the documentaries. Very, very good. Um, so uh, I like this match. It's pretty good when Chris Adonis in there against Judas is very good. Now, the last three matches, also very interesting. So Nick Aldis was a longtime NWA champion. He lost the match to Trevor Murdoch, and now Murdoch is the NWA champion. Well, Nick Aldis has a has a number of people that's in his stable. Tom Latimer was also in his stable. But what I really liked was just the build for this match, right? Um, just the NWA does a really good job of promos and building together, you know, putting um, production pieces together. And so this is a grudge match. 11 minutes, Nick Aldis and Tom Latimer. I'm back there somewhere, so I want you to hear this. It's time for a couple of truth bombs, Tom. There's one place you need to look if you want to know why I got the contract and you did it. One place to look if you want to know why I got the endorsement and you did it. One place to look. If you want to know why I've got the house and the cars and the wife and you don't. And that place is the mirror. Because you have every tool that anybody needs to be a top star in this sport. And you blow it. And you know what? You say that I used you as a stepping stone. No way. You're a remora fish. And you've been swimming in my slipstream for 17 years, you piece of So here it is. I don't care where it is, sanctioned or unsanctioned, I'm going to beat your ass. And you're right about one thing. I did go home. I did go home and look in the mirror and say I was beat, beat to a pulp. I did look at my son in the eye and say, yeah, Uncle Tom beat Daddy up. But the bit that you don't know is that when Donovan said to me, Dad, why did Uncle Tom beat you up? I said, because... He don't need to ride daddy's coattails anymore because now he rides Camille's. Because son, Uncle Tom is just a Dollar Tree Nick Aldis. And that is strictly business. Strictly Business, or what's left of Strictly Business, the NWA World's Champion, Camille, and Tom Latimer. We've all... I'm sorry, uh, i got to take this from you, Kyle. To be honest, I've got to get some stuff off my chest. See, me and Nick, we've been, uh, we've been friends since, since we were kids. I mean, you know, we grew up together. We, we started training at the same time. We started wrestling 
on the UK camp scene at the same time. And we've been best friends since day one, right? I mean, I was even the best man on his wedding day. I mean, this is real life. This is, this is real. I was his best man on his wedding day. So Nick was out here the other week and he said that you know, he used to make 30 pounds, 30 pounds a night on the camps, right? That's how much he used to get paid. And he used that money and he saved it so he could go to Harley Race's camp and learn how to be a prof professional wrestler. And I thought, well, that's kind of funny, to be honest, because isn't that typical Nick? He was getting paid 30 pounds a night. And of course, Tom, well, he was only getting paid 25. And then we fast forward a little bit and he gets signed to a big American wrestling promotion and he leaves me in the UK. And when I do finally get to the States, of course he's making the big bucks and I'm making peanuts. And he's the world heavyweight champion. I don't get me wrong. I've got all the respect in the world for you, mate. I really do. But of course, it's you, Nick, and you never get into any trouble. You don't get arrested. You don't mess up opportunities. You don't ruin marriages. No, everything is just hunky-dory for you, isn't it? But you know what? You do get, of course, you get the mansion. You get all the free watches. You get to eat for free in every restaurant in town. Not to mention the free suits. I deserve those things. I do. You use me as a stepping stone to get to those things, to achieve your dreams. You use me. So... I need you, while you're at home, nursing your wounds, to have a good think. Why would Tom, my best friend, do this to me? Well, it was because you got weak, you got pathetic, you lost your edge besides everything else. We're seeing a lot, a lot of intelligence. Uh, it's, it's From both right now. Yeah. Oh, runs into the back elbow. And oh, now, no, he's not doing the cloverleaf. No. He can't possibly. He's no, going to no, do. No, no. He's, he's going to make him tap to his own move. He's going to make him tap to his own move. They can't play cloverleaf. I can't think of anything that would humiliate Nick Aldis more and look at this. than beating him with his own move. Look at the way he's doing it. By not stepping over, it puts more pain and pressure onto the neck. And Aldis is feeling he's all of it. He's crawling. He's almost no, there, so Nick. Almost. He's got it. He's got it. And he oh, he's right back in the Planted that knee in the middle oh, of the Nick, back. Oh, all this is in so much pain. It's written all over his face right now. Looks like he was able to kick him off. Yeah. Nice. Looking for the figure for himself. All this again. Oh, the pile driver oh, is oh, all to oh, but he just collapsed into a heap. Can he capitalize? Hey, Can he get into the pin? He's got him covered. Looking a leg. Will it be enough? Oh. No. 
themselves as far as they can. Who can dig deeper? That's what we're down to. Really, it really is. Trading blows now. Oh, the open hand slap by Aldis. Swing and a miss. Latimer taking advantage. Forearms. European uppercut. Rocks Nick Aldis. And as they look at this, and as they're Another digging, one. as they're digging down like this, it could come down to, at this point in what they're doing with the relationship, who hates each other the most. The one that the one that has the most made of motivation may be the one that's able to pull this out. Maybe oh no! Jackknife! Shoulders down! He got it! I thought it stole the show. Nick Aldis defeated Tom Latimer. Also, my first time seeing Steve Carino's son, Colby Carino. Boy, that guy. It was a really good matchup against Doug Williams. I haven't seen Doug Williams in about a decade. Doug Williams was part of TNA um, and WCW, if I'm not mistaken. Doug Williams, the wrestler from the UK, coming over to America, taking on Colby Carino. Colby Carino's he can go, man. He is He's part of a faction with Jay Bradley and uh, Wrecking Ball Ligurski. Uh, eight minutes, really solid matchup. It's my second favorite match on the on the card, as a matter of fact. I thought that they really wrestled well. I mean, it's it's hard to have a bad match with Doug Williams. <laughs> I mean, he, he'll tie you in knots, obviously. But Kobe Carino, I mean, he really showed me something there. Uh, Trevor Murdoch is the NWA champion. So real quickly as we close, I remember Trevor Murdoch uh, being on Busted Open with uh, Mark Henry and I. As I mentioned earlier, I'll be with Mark Henry again on December 18th. I'll be in, uh, filling in, doing 8 to 11 a.m. Central Time on Saturday with Mark Henry on Sirius XM Fight Nation. Um, I remember us having Trevor Murdoch on before Trevor took on Nick Aldis for the NWA Heavyweight Championship in St. Louis for NWA 73, their anniversary show. And I was talk- we talked to Trevor, and it was kind of kayfabe, and, you know, we talked to him off the air before the interview. He's like, oh, I got my son, you know, my son's here in St. Louis, and it's just emotional. He didn't tip his hand on whether or not he's going to win that match, because it was like either Trevor Murdoch was going to win the championship or retire, and he won the championship, and I was surprised. I'm like, oh, Trevor Murdoch is the NWA champion after Nick Aldis had this like a thousand day run or whatever it was. So I see it in this match against Mike Knox uh, for the championship and decent match, but just kind of a finish because Murdoch still does the bulldog off the top rope. And it was not, tell you what, it was not Barry Windham. It wasn't even Kendall Windham with that bulldog, but still a great story was told. Champion. He wants the big bulldog. Going up top. Meanwhile, Knox is getting to his feet. Yeah, I don't know. Knox Uh-oh. is pretty far away. Oh, boy. Trevor's got to hurry. Oh, boy. Oh, and he oh, pushed no. push Jared Fritz into the top rope. Not smart. Trevor Murdoch collapses on that top turnbuckle. 
And now Mike Knox going to work. He's not coming up. Advantage now. Oh no! He's got not this. this He's is got not good. Oh, that's a lot of good. weight. Here we go. That's a lot of man up there. Oh no! Superplex! Superplex to the Just champion. Rocked the whole. Ring is still, yeah, the ring is still shaking. Tim, almost 700 pounds of weight coming down on the ring. He's got a hand over the chest. Will it be enough? Uh, no. You are not going to beat Trevor Murdoch by, by, and I know he's struggling, but to lay just an arm over him, you're uh, not no, going to no, no. win the NWA not. title with that. So much torque, so much impact from that move. It could be enough here. They got, got the, the bottom rope. rope. Didn't have the strength possibly enough to kick out of that. Maybe he chose not to. He saw where he was. Good point. Good point. Now you can see the wheels turning in the mind of Mike Knox, trying to think, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to beat this man? He misses with the elbow. Well, he, he's, he, is, he is hitting with some really big, big, big stuff to the point where he's got to be questioning right now. Like you're saying, what do I have to do? And, and there's the question, what do you do to beat him at this point? Maybe he's I looking guess, for a second superplex. Well, I, and I guess that's an option. It's just the about broke the ring on the first one. Oh, no, wait a minute. Trevor Murdoch's got him now. That's a headbutt. Now Trevor Murdoch. This gives Trevor Murdoch the opportunity. Get up there, champ. Get up. Get up. Oh, he hits it. There's the bulldog. And a cover. He hooks the leg. So, he did it. There it is. He did it. Here he came. And still, you're and still. Anyway, world's heavyweight champion, Trevor Murdoch. What a hell of a main event this was between both men. Trevor Murdoch retaining the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And that'll do it for another edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Boy, we went over hour 45. Hey, but I've had fun talking about the NWA as well as going through my Hall of Fame ballot for um, Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer. All after getting a um, Pfizer shot. Oh, my God. I just just got a Pfizer shot a couple hours ago. Hope I hope this podcast was in English. <laughs> don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at WrestlingTWT. Again, WrestlingTWT. And don't forget the YouTube page, YouTube.com. This podcast was ad-free, but I will tell you that we are brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped.com. And use the promo code HOOD, H-O-O-D, for below-the-waist men's grooming. Talk to you next time on TWT. Thanks for listening.